But looking at the title of our message today, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, Heavens No, uh, you can probably tell that we're going to be talking about some things that might give you pause, as why do we want to talk about these kinds of things in church? Well, you know, one thing I appreciate about the Scripture is that it deals with real-world things, to include the most intimate things of our lives, like sexuality. But since there may be some of you tuning in who feel your kids may not be ready to be exposed to the subject matter, you might want to engage the message later or even explain it to your kids later on after you've digested it. Because there's one thing that we know, and that sexuality will be talked about. Isn't that true? Somebody's going to talk to your kids about it. And if we don't or we feel that we can't talk about sexuality with discretion in the church, Where can we talk about it among God's people? And let's not forget, there was no Sunday school with the original audience. No doubt there were little kids in the service then as they were talking about this kind of stuff. But why are we going to be talking about sexuality today? The short answer is that our passage for today, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, deals with it and just happens to be next on our list. So that's why we're doing it. So our passage today is not about pleasant things. Now, one thing you may have noticed so far in our study in the Corinthian correspondence is how raw and real these issues are. Like two weeks ago, remember we talked about an incestual relationship in the church and what the Corinthians were to do about it. They were to exercise church discipline. Then last week, we talked about lawsuits. Christians suing Christians and inviting pagans to arbitrate. And, and, you know, Paul gave them a dose of death theology as an antidote to this, as in denying themselves, taking up their cross daily and following Jesus. See, Paul told the Philippians what this looks like, what this taking up our cross and following Jesus looks like among believers in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, We are to do nothing from selfish ambition, or conceit, but in humility we are to consider others more significant than ourselves. We are to lay down our rights for the sake of others. But what is the big picture that Paul addresses in this letter so far? In a word, disunity. But of all the things the apostle could have addressed, as we know so far, a lot of problems, it was disunity. But remember what kind of culture the Corinthians were came out of as as non-Christians, and they came into into the church. What was that culture? Well, first of all, it was immorality. And also talking heads, seeing who can outdo with one another in the most emotional tales, whether true or not. It didn't matter whether it was true. They just went and tried to get the most emotional bang for the buck. It was also a me-first mentality, where my rights are first and foremost. This was their culture. But why, of all these things, why would Paul put unity up front and center as his number one issue, especially in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians? Simple answer, Jesus did. That is a good place to start. See, Jesus considered unity among his people at the very top of his list as he prayed to the Father right before he went to the cross. 
We read in, in John 17, 22 and 23, these words. He's praying to the Father here, and he says, The glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them. Who? Us. That they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, perfectly unified, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. See, Jesus was far more concerned about our witness to the world than we could ever be. He died to bring glory to the Father. He died to produce reconciliation between sinful man and God. And Jesus is vitally concerned about the witness the church gives to the world. The disunity that Paul pointed out to the church in Corinth greatly concerned him, and it must have broken the heart of Jesus. Whether it was promotion of certain personalities or acceptance of vile sexual practices or brothers suing against one another and inviting the pagans to arbitrate, all of this fell far short of a unified Christian witness showing the world that they were Jesus' disciples because they loved one another. (laughs) And just as if things could not get any worse, wait for it, Christians in Corinth were actually participating in prostitution. How wicked can that be? Illicit sexual activity under the guise of spiritual fulfillment and a what is natural is okay philosophy is what we're talking about here. Simply put, the Corinthian church was failing miserably in her God-given task to be a faithful witness to the non-Christians around her. Today, I want us here, and all within the sound of my voice, we who call ourselves followers of Christians or followers of Christ, to not fail in our witness to the non-Christians around us. Now is our time to shine. Now, I watched an interview of John MacArthur recently. You may know him, kind of indescript guy. Here's what he says. He said, particularly now, Christians ought to be the most level-headed, sane, joy-filled people on the planet. Good words. I love these. This is what we ought to be to the watching world. But tragically, because we so often look like the world and act like the world and frantically react the same way the world does to our current crisis, it is no wonder we show a vastly diluted witness to the world. See, we as Christians are called to be salt and light to the world. Salt as in reminding the world that we as Christians have a living relationship with the living God. And light as in showing our good works, resulting in those around us giving glory to our Heavenly Father, who is the all-wise God. So as we begin this morning in this passage, I want to kind of outline where we're going. In verses 12 to 14, we will take a look at common slogans many of the Christians lived or Corinthians lived by, having to do with their philosophy of life. And it boils down to this. It does not matter what I do with my body. Or to put it in more modern terms, you don't have the right to tell me what to do with my body. They considered it a priority to please themselves, especially when it came to sexual activity and food. Paul will set the Corinthians straight and once again show that what they do with their bodies really does matter. In verses 15 to 17, 
Paul explains the spiritual entanglement that happens when they engage in sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship. And in verses 18 to 20, Paul commands the Christian to flee sexual immorality because of who they are and of whose they are. So let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 14. All things are lawful for me, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us, raise also, and will also raise us up by his power. As I mentioned, the Corinthian Christians emerged from their cultural soil, permeated with sensual freedom. To be a Corinthian, as we remember, was to be considered sexually immoral. They were free to do with whatever they wanted to do with their bodies sexually. It was okay. And I don't want to get explicit, but we need to see a strand of what the, Corinthian, what the Corinthians came out of, their culture. See, it was common for Corinthians to horribly mistreat slaves any way they wanted to in their day, to include sexually. No voices of protest, no advocates for the oppressed. Abolition had not even entered into anyone's mind in those days. In a master-slave relationship, sexual abuse was extremely common. It was just the way things were done then. But into this moral slime pit of despair comes Paul preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. And God began to work, and people began to get saved, and an increasing number of people became more human, to include those who were slaves and their owners. See, God did not work just at the slave level of society. No, people from the highest social and political ranks also came to faith in Christ. And so now imagine the scene in the church. People who probably abuse slaves were sitting next to the very slaves they abused. What a change that was. Now, in their world, sexual activity of all kinds was as natural as eating. That's the sum of that, of that slogan we were talking about. Everything was permissible. But Paul taught them a new way. What they did with their bodies mattered. I can't imagine that when Paul was with them for that first 18 months that he failed to train them in the ways of godliness and how important it was for God's people to honor him with their bodies. And so I say that Paul doesn't instruct them here. He reminds them of the importance of serving the Lord through what they do, especially sexually, as we will see with whom they also share meals with. Here's Paul's reminder. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And Paul feels that he has to spell it out to the Corinthians and us too. Immorality, bad. Abstaining from immorality, good. But Paul here does not merely moralize. He does not just tell them to stay away from sex. He reminds them that resurrection is coming. And he says this, and God raised the Lord and also will raise us up by his power. And though it is obvious exactly what will God raise up 
at the resurrection? How about our bodies? Our bodies are important. The implication is that we will give an account to the Lord of what we have done sexually. In other words, I can hear Paul saying, get ready for resurrection day. You will give an account for what you did with your body. And so after Paul once again sets the Corinthian believers straight regarding their common cliches, he now addresses straight on about how powerful sexual entanglement is and how much damage sexual immorality does to them individually and the body of Christ generally. It is definitely more than mere physical activity. We know this, don't we? There is a strong spiritual component there as well. Let's read verses 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now in verse 15, Paul reminds them of something that they knew full well. Every Christian is a member of Christ's body. Now, it's not mere, a mere rhetoric or rhetorical mentality or a strong feeling of solidarity. We're not just talking about that at that level. No, the physical real, spiritual reality is just as real as the physical one in God's economy. Paul likens spiritual members, Christians, to actual physical members attached to an actual physical body. That's how strong it is. Now imagine a beautiful, healthy, 25-year-old woman standing in front of you. And all of a sudden, an evil power directs someone very strong to come up and literally rip her arm off. And then her arm is to be attached to the body of another woman who needs an arm. Picture like this, like the Bride of Frankenstein. You know what I'm talking about. With one body part here, another body part there. See, this, says Paul, is what happens when a Christian, a member of Christ, deliberately goes and joins himself to a prostitute and becomes part of her or him because male prostitutes existed then and maybe even now. That's how damaging, that's how ugly this situation is, says God through Paul. Unless they think this is just something that Paul made up in his head, he reminds them of the opening chapters of Genesis, where the two shall become one flesh. See, this is marriage as God intends. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this leave and cleave one flesh relationship is good and is right. A natural part of married life is Sexual activity. In other words, sex is God's idea. It is good in proper context. Sex is a wonderful thing if the couple is wearing wedding bands. <laughs> but sex is horrific in any other context. It is a no-brainer that sexual activity is more than mere mechanics, isn't it? It should be obvious as well that the two Corinthian quotes that we were talking about do not work here. It is not mere mechanical union between two human beings. 
There is a spiritual component in play here, just as important and just as powerful and just as real as the physical. But things do not change from that day to this. Truth never changes, does it? It is transcultural, transage. It always is true no matter what. Why is it, for example, that divorce is so difficult even if kids are not involved? Why is it that one of the main reasons why young people commit suicide is over broken relationship? Two people get involved physically, which they are well aware of, and spiritually, which they may not be well aware of. And then something happens. They have a fallout and they break up. And tragically, many take their own lives. They are convinced that their world has come to an end. Something spiritual between them has died And so they think that's nothing else left. Imagine a piece of plywood. And we know what plywood is, right? Several pieces of wood are layered together and they're glued together, you know, together and it's permanent. Now, imagine cutting off from that sheet of plywood 12 inches square, a piece, and then trying to separate all of the plies from the plywood. Can you do it cleanly? No, it's impossible, isn't it? This is what it's like for a former sexual relationship, the people in the sexual relationship. It's never a clean break. Again, this underscores the spiritual aspect of sexual activity. And notice again in verse 17, Paul reminds them of the truth of the Corinthian Christians have with the Lord. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Members of Christ's body are joined to him in a real, unbreakable bond. And that's so great to hear, isn't it? Because of assurance. We need assurance that God is with us and we're with the Lord. If we're in Christ, we really are in Christ, then that bond is unbreakable. We don't have to worry about that. We are, in a sense, married to him. But the unexpressed question is simply this. Why would any Christian, self-proclaimed Christian, wrench himself away from the body of Christ and join himself in Frankenstein fashion to a prostitute. In verses 18 to 20, Paul now ratchets things up and gets and talks turkey here, talks brass tacks. He says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Notice in verse 18, Paul issues a direct command in direct contradiction to the Corinthian quotes, to the philosophy of the day. At the same time, he reveals why divine commands are issued in the first place. Paul says, flee. Run away from sexual immorality. Do everything possible to get away from it. And I think about all the temptations on today, and I think primarily online. Do whatever it takes to get away from it. You know, Jesus said something about gouging out eyes, cutting off hands. Do whatever it takes, even if it means cutting the cord, right? Do what it takes to get rid of it, get away from it. But we think, why deny oneself, though, of sexual pleasure? But the warning here is that sexual sin, 
from God's perspective is damaging in ways that are different from all other sins. Paul is making a distinction here between sexual sin and every other sin. There are many ideas floating around. The learned guys are in their comments here with with this. But think about the purpose for sexual activity. Why did God give sex to people? It's his gift, right? This is God's first command given to the human race. Be fruitful and multiply. It is for procreation. It's also for pleasure. And anything that pollutes this exclusive relationship flies in the face of God's gracious command. And this pollution somehow goes deeper into our soul than any other sin. See, but God knows this, and he wants to spare us immense pain. That's why he wants us to keep sexually pure. So now let's turn our attention to verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. These verses hold the key, I believe, to this passage that we've been talking about today. So let's begin at the end of these verses, at the end of verse 19 and verse 20. Once again, Paul reminds the Christians of whose they are. They are owned by God, right? You were bought with a price. God owns us, is what he says. In essence, Paul says, as opposed to the, the, the meme of the day, you can do what you want. Paul says this, you are not free to do as you please. You're not allowed to consider yourselves free agents or that sex with whomever is as natural as eating. Because the Messiah suffered for you, you have been spared the wrath of God. Why do you engage in the things that will bring down God's wrath on your head? Christian, you are joined to the one who laid down his life for you. The king stooped to meet your needs. In the area of sexual behavior, show the Lord that you love him by doing what he says. Christian, glorify God in your body. This is Paul's bottom line here for us. But let's look carefully, though, at the beginning of verse 19. For this opens up, I believe, the backstory of what Paul is talking about here. This is the key. Let's read this sentence again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Let's begin with the numbers. You in this is plural. Y'all. It's not singular. It's you. It's plural. The word body is singular, as well as the word temple. That's singular also. So what's Paul getting at? Simply put, all the Christians together make up one temple of God. In other words, he is stressing the unity of the body here. The issue at hand is that the Corinthian church was to be the place where the holy, pure presence of God was, for the Holy Spirit showed himself among them. Now, again, we know the Holy Spirit lives in each individual believer, but the thrust of this passage is the corporateness of this. In other words, the Corinthian church was to be God's temple through the presence of the Holy Spirit. For the local church was Christ's body. This was to be the dwelling place of the only true and living God. But now with that said, one would think in Corinth, in that place of idolatry and all that immorality, that the church of Jesus Christ, the temple of God, would be the only game in town. 
not by a long shot. See, the true temple of the only God competed, as it were, with the object of worship in Corinth. Later in this letter, Paul actually called them demons. Their objects of worship, he called them demons. He knew the spiritual warfare that waged all around them with the score of 15 gods and goddesses to one. Who's the one? The true and living God. But these religious gatherings were enticing. Lots of festivals, lots of food, wine, free-flowing, along with these feasts, though, in the name of these gods, which were many, came some, quote, after-dinner entertainment, as one commentator put it. For after all, what party would be complete without living out the meme of the day, summed up like this, sex is as natural as eating. And what's that after-dinner entertainment? Temple prostitution. See, with all the wickedness that went along with this very attractive pagan festivals, held in honor of the many gods and goddesses of the city, all the people in town were expected to participate. You really weren't a good citizen unless you participated. So much for separation, church and state, right? Not them. Again, with all the food and wine offered, along with all the after-dinner entertainment of temple prostitution, is it any wonder that the Corinthian Christians might be just a little tempted to participate, to go back into that life, especially those who still held on to the meme of the day, emphasizing their freedom in Christ? Here's probably what some of them said. After all, since Christ forgave me of all of my sins, I can do what I want. And apparently some of them thought that and some of them lived that out. What Paul was warning them about in this passage was their poor witness to their world. Let's quickly review what their witness was before we apply this passage to ourselves. The Corinthian Christians exalted one spiritual leader over another. They boasted in human beings rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christians were proud about their sexual looseness in the church. They took their grievances between themselves out to the pagan public. And some who claimed to be Christians defended the philosophy of the day. We can do what we want with our bodies, even celebrating at temple feasts, complete with temple prostitution. And the big question for them, and really for us too, is this. Was Jesus Christ and him crucified enough or were they still looking for spiritual reality? What a godly witness, Corinthians. At the very least, their Christian walk, such as it was, did not match their talk about Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven and earth, crucified for sinners, actually being the only place where true spirituality is to be found. Apparently, they thought they could return to the world and still have Jesus, even though Jesus says, turn your back on the world. And as a result, their witness to the pagans was nil. Well, as we know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. In our culture, we have altars to our gods. We have cultural memes as well. And many who claim to be Christians have apparently returned to the enticements of this life. For the sake of, quote, reaching the lost, far too often we revert to being like those who the Lord wants us to witness to. 
Tragically, too many of us feel that for the sake of spiritual freedom, we can adopt a worldly philosophy and we get deceived into thinking that we can find spiritual reality there. And time will fail us even if we try to even scratch the surface of how deeply the church is compromised with the world's ways over the years and even in our day. And therefore, because of that compromise, we have such a watered-down witness that there's little distinction between us in the world. But let me give you three areas briefly where the world is looking for spiritual reality. Sex, drugs, and music, which I will lump together with the common meme, right? Rock and roll. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. There's no secret that sexual activity has been viewed as a spiritual experience down through the ages. It was then, and it is now. And I ran across some things on, on the web that just kind of blew me away. And I don't remember her name, but I just kind of thought, well, this is amazing or appalling, really, whichever case. And so I wrote these couple of quotes down from this one person to give you a, a, just, some, just some idea about what typically non-Christians are going after when it comes to sexual activity. Here's the first quote. Sex is a core function of humanity. It plays a huge role in the physical health and vitality of the body. Sex is also an immense universal force that can merge your spirit, your divine essence, with your body. That's one. Here's the second. Embrace the act of sex as worship of your partner and his sacred representation of the divine. This is what's out there. This is what many people want. This is what they're looking for. Now, I could go on, but I'm going to stop there. But you get the idea. And when it comes to drugs, many people use them to escape reality. Or some people have have an addiction that they can't shake. But many others use drugs as a way to enhance their spiritual experience, to make it more intense. For example, we know about the Native American churches. They use peyote, don't they? Well, the Amazonian peoples of South America use ayahuasca to connect with the spiritual world and for learning and healing purposes. They use this drug for this. This drug is considered a teacher and a wisdom plant. Marijuana is used in Hinduism to promote spiritual experiences. Hindus associate cannabis with the god Shiva, who is believed to have been given the drug to humanity as a sign for, of gratitude. I'm not making this up. This is, what's, this is what they believe. It's also well known that the Beatles, remember this, the group, the Beatles, right? Their use of drugs profoundly affected their work. According to Rolling Stone magazine, until Paul McCartney joined the other three in his first LSD trip, they were on opposing sides. George, John, and Ringo against Paul. And after Paul finally joined them down the LSD road, they produced what many considered their finest album, Revolver, which greatly influenced so many groups contemporary with them and then afterwards as well. Lennon's foray into Buddhism and Harrison's increasing love for Hinduism and even McCartney's admission of God's existence in the aftermath of his LSD trips 
was in large measure the foundation for this album, Revolver, and even Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band after that. Rock and roll was a genre of music that began in the 50s. Those of us who've been around for a little while, we know this to be true. And eventually became a staple of music in our culture. And it's widely known that the term rock and roll was a reference to sexual activity, which goes right back to the issue of those seeking spiritual reality apart from Christ. Let me give you two examples from this world to let you know what I mean. The late Jimi Hendrix, you've heard of him. He considered his performances preaching acts, so to speak. And here's what he says, quote, I can explain everything better through music. You hypnotize people to where they go right back to their natural state, which is pure positive, like in childhood when you got natural highs. And when you get people at their weakest point, you can then preach to their subconscious what we want to say. In other words, Hendrix's music set up the people to receive the message he wanted to preach to them. This was in his concerts. And one of Jefferson Starship, remember Jefferson Starship? It was Jefferson Airplane, Jefferson Starship. One of their songs, in my opinion, epitomizes sexual activity as a spiritual experience with the song that's called Miracles. You may have heard that song. The words of this song are so graphic, I'm not going to mention them here. But this song, in my opinion, completely weds together music and the couple having a spiritual experience while engaging in sexual activity. It is a powerful song. But that doesn't mean you should go watch it or listen to it or whatever. But it does, epitomizes this, what we're talking about here. So what am I trying to accomplish in this application for us? Simply underscoring the famous statement by Mirica Elade, a scholar of world religions who said this, mankind is incurably religious. In other words, regardless of whether a person is rightly related to God through Christ or not, we all are wired to worship something, anything. We must have a spiritual reality. We must have it. Even atheists, if you can believe that. See, militant atheists spend their time doing what? Deliberately suppressing the God they insist doesn't exist. And in his denial of God's existence, he therefore is living in the spiritual reality of fighting against God. And so if Paul were to stand before us today, he would say, sex, drugs, rock and roll is a way of finding spiritual reality? Heavens, no. And though we are religious, since the day we became sinners in the Garden of Eden, we've been trying to fulfill the longing for spiritual reality on one hand, but stubbornly holding on to our rebellion against the only true God with the other. And the Corinthian church is a tragic example of that. But don't misunderstand that. The Corinthian church was a true church. Jesus Christ and him crucified was the foundation that Paul laid. And there were many in the Corinthian church who no doubt were born again by the Spirit of God. The true Christians together as Paul said, made up the temple of the Holy Spirit, the very dwelling place of God. But some, perhaps many, of the Corinthians either forgot who they were or they turned back and re-embraced the cultural memes of the day. 
They thought they could make an ethical return to their culture, and that would be okay with Jesus. And with that, the witness of the church was compromised. The same is true in so many in the church of Jesus Christ today, do you think? How many of us have embraced the culture along with its means? One mean being this. Christians are supposed to obey the 11th commandment. You know what the 11th commandment is, right? That shall be nice. See, Christians are not supposed to oppose anything that the politically correct crowd says is off limits. Like calling sin, sin, as God defines it. See, Jesus was not afraid to call sin, sin, was he? But look at what that got him. Can we do any less? But let me give you an up-to-date cultural meme, and that is this. We need to live in continual fear that we probably have the coronavirus and don't know it. Or if we do know it and we pass it on to someone, that they stand a good chance of dying. In other words, it seems that we cannot even be human beings around one another lest we be bearers of the death sentence. Even breathing in one another's presence. This is not an exaggeration. In one of the daily updates, Governor Northam encouraged everyone to wear something to cover their faces. Why is that? Because they said, now, according to some epidemiologists, by our breathing, we can transmit the droplets. So we have to cover our faces. And it's my understanding that I just heard the other day that uh, in, in Quebec, that people in their small groups, home study groups, Bible study groups, can't even sing because they're afraid of the virus being transmitted. But in Virginia, we have a conundrum. Because we are not allowed to wear masks because of criminal activity. So we can't wear a mask, but yet we're supposed to wear a mask to protect ourselves. What do we do with this? Where will the panic end for the Christian? It will end when we stop believing the panic narratives and fully trust God's promises made to believers. I'm not saying that we should throw precautions to the wind. We still need to take precautions. Take measures, yes. We obey the laws until the laws tell us to not, until the laws say that we must disobey the Lord. We need to do this. However, what I'm concerned about is what the panic narrative is doing to our heart, to our spirit. Psalm 27.1 is still applicable today. Remember what we, what we did in our open worship time, in our, in our corporate prayer time. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom, and I'll just add, what, whom or what shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom or what shall I be afraid? And so I want us here to take a moment to stop and take stock of our heart. I want to read this verse again slowly. And as I do, I want you to ask the Lord, where are you in this? Is my heart at rest because I believe this scripture? And if your heart is at rest, give him praise, give him thanks. And if not, ask the Lord to help you get your heart in line with these inspired words.
And so as I read again, let's have an attitude of prayer. Ask the Lord, where are you? Are you at rest or are you not? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Lord, do business with us. May our hearts be at rest in you. Now, Psalm 27.1 is true of you. Then you and I need to live as though it is true. See, it is the Lord who is our light and salvation. But who is the Lord? He's holy. He's righteous. He is love himself. He is the one and the only one who truly has our best interest at his heart. He's perfect. He's all wise. He's all powerful. And he has every right to tell you and me what to do. And what did he tell us to do? He told us how to maintain confidence in him in the face of things like what the world is facing right now. And what that is, is that we are to walk in fellowship with him. See, we cannot claim to have confidence in the Lord if we are living in sin. Psalm 32, 1 to 7 makes that clear. And here's what David says. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Stop and think about that. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Stop and think about that. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Stop and think about that. But here's the point I want us to walk away with. We are to live differently from the world. This is the only way that we can be a witness to it. When we as Christians respond to the world's Pied Pipers in the same way the world does, how will they know that we listen to the sound of a different piper? How will they know that there is a different way to live, like having confidence that the Lord is in complete control? And along with the Apostle Paul, when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, for the Christian, the most this virus can do to us is to send us on a one-way trip to the presence of Jesus where we will be with him forever. To die is gain. As I mentioned last week, the most potent weapon the devil has is the fear of death with the operative word fear. We combat the fear of death first by being in the family of God, the repentance of our sins and faith in Christ. If you're not rightly related to God through Christ, in the strongest way I know how, let me encourage you. Turn from your sin 
Embrace the salvation that's found in Christ alone. Follow the one who died for you and rose again from the dead. If you are in the family of God, arm yourself with the truth. The Lord has given us a wonderful way of controlling what goes on in our minds. And I call it a thought checklist. And it's found in Philippians 4.8. And I found that when I continually think about what the Lord would have me think about, that I can rejoice in Christ and I can pray to him in a thanksgiving saturated way. And here's Paul's thought checklist in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so I encourage you tonight, before you lay your head on the pillow, to read Philippians 4, 4 through 9, at least five times. Can you do that? A few verses, Philippians 4, 4 through 9, five times. And then try to memorize Philippians 4, 8. Begin to control what you think about, what you meditate on. See, God has given you and me the ability to do that. We don't have to just take it in and just... And, and not combat that. We can do something about what comes into our minds. Use God's thought checklist to keep the panic out. Let me complete this message today. John MacArthur's words ringing in our ears. I've already mentioned them before, but they are potent. Christians are to be the most level-headed, sane, joy-filled people on the planet for the glory of God and for the sake of Christ. Let us pray. Our God and Father, thank you for the word that you've given us about unity. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making it possible by your spirit. Lord, you are concerned about our witness to the world. And our witness is so wrapped up in our sexuality, so wrapped up in sexual purity, is so wrapped up in our unity So, Lord, I pray that you'll take what we heard today from your word, that we will apply it to our lives, and that the world will see a better witness from your church as a result. I thank you, Lord, for the encouragement from your word, the things that you have shown us from your word that that tells us that we don't have to live in fear. Lord, that we can control what we're thinking about and what we're meditating on as we think about the things that are true and lovely, and right, and just, and commendable, and praiseworthy, and excellent. Lord, help us to think on these things. And not to be dancing to the Pied Piper's tune of the world. But Lord, may we dance to your tune, for your glory, and for your honor. And I pray now, Lord, as we sing our final song, that you will dismiss us with your blessing, and that you'll help us to be the the better witness that you've called us to be for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.